was a decision, do we stay here and keep it an Australian-focused business or do we move it to the US and take on the world? And I remember my husband looking at me and saying, I'm not going to die with this regret of yours, let's try it. So we packed up two bags and a baby and moved over in 2013. Welcome to Startup West, the podcast about building scalable tech startups in sunny Western Australia. My name's Charlie Gunningham. And I'm Danelle Cross. And in this episode, we're talking with Olivia Humphrey, the founder of the on-demand streaming video platform Canopy. The business was launched in Scarborough in 2008, left for the States in 2013 and did very well. Hi, Olivia, and welcome to Startup West. Thanks for having me. So can you briefly tell us about Canopy? So what gave you the idea and a little bit about your journey with the business? Sure. The idea really stemmed back in the day when I was working for Village Roadshow and I was managing a lot of their independent film and documentary collections and these were the DVD days. And Mm. I remember thinking students spend a lot of money going to the cinema yet they're not buying DVDs. And I went to the university... uh, the, the library book, show, book and DVD shelves and just saw a lot of books but not many, not much yeah. film. And I thought I think there's a really big market here because students respond so well to film, that demographic at least, mm. and uh, film isn't being used in, in educating the students as much as it could be. Mm. And so the, the seed was born then. Fantastic. Right, so you finished at Village Roadshow, you were looking for something to do and you saw this problem. Is that what happened? That's pretty much it. My now husband and I did backpack around the world for a year, so I had the benefit of a year drinking a lot of tequila. Right, (laughs) letting the brain settle. (laughs) What am I going to do next? Yeah, exactly, to really think, uh, think quite big. Right, okay. And how was it built initially? So how did you bring it together, that that problem? So my initial ambition was to really have a home business. Mm -hmm. So I went to some university libraries in Australia and asked them how they purchased their DVDs and it turned out it was a 22-step process. For example, (laughs) one of the big universities here in Perth said they spent 3% of their budget Uh, on DVDs, the library budget at least, on DVDs and about over 50% of their time trying to source them. It was a very difficult process. So my uh, solution to this problem was Canopy and Canopy was uh, the canopy over all of these steps Mm. to become a one-step process for the university libraries. They simply send their DVD orders to me and then Canopy would process it. So these are educational movies, instructional videos for uni students. Is that the idea? A lot of documentary films, some right. really sort of um, academic content as well. Right. Um, a lot of independent film as well, right. um, foreign film, and also for film schools, it was a very wide of <laughs> definition of what they needed. Film as schools, well. yes, and mm. and some of these would be sources that they, the students would have to go to as part of their course. Is that the idea? Or um, that was my aim to try and make film mandatory viewing, just right. as books mm-hmm. and journals were mag- mandatory reading, which is now the case, but back Mm. then it was more supplementary content. Got it. Mm. And you self-funded this business in the beginning? I did self-fund. It was one of those fortunate businesses whereby I could order the DVDs on my trade account, send them to the universities, get paid, and then pay back the trade. So cash flow was never and still isn't an issue for for Canopy. Mm. Great business right. model. And then so you started in Scarborough. You presumably door knocked, what, there are 39 universities in Australia? Correct. You had to go to all of them or the libraries the li- and public libraries maybe as well? Or public library. We didn't launch into public later. libraries until much later. So right. it was just literally the 39 universities right. in Australia and it was door knocking. It was even um, in the early days I door knocked as a courier to I charged the universities for a, a fee, a postage fee, and then I would pocket that and 
and you get myself to the Perth University (laughs) What was that like? Did they say, oh, yes, we have a problem and, oh, you have the solution to the problem, fantastic, or was it a really slow grind to get them on? Very slow grind. Right. Very slow grind. Initially it was I can save you time and then it evolved into creating a demand for, for the films and that demand got bigger and bigger and bigger until about two years into the uh, evolution of, of Canopy, the university libraries were reporting spending more on Canopy than on e-books for the first mm. time in history. So what what happened was yeah. the obviously Netflix launched, YouTube launched and streaming right. video became a thing. Mm. And I thought this is a fabulous, this solves so many problems with relating to DVD, just the technology and the amount of students that could see the films and yes. um, of the, the, the uh, online learning explosion. Mm. So in around 2010, so I launched Canopy in 2008 and in 2010 I migrated the DVD business into the streaming business and literally shut down the DVD business. And that was one of those pivotal temple moments where the business literally, I think, the revenues increased tenfold within a year. Wow. Amazing. And were you still in Scarborough when this happened or had you or you were about to move to the US? Still in our front room in Scarborough. There were probably three or four staff at that time Mm -hmm. all coming to to my home. Yeah. It was a lot of fun those early yeah. years. Yeah. And awesome. the business model, it was a pay prescription, pay-per-view, the u- the uni was paying, not the students, is that right? As long as they That's were right. students of the university and the university paid, they had access or? I call it a B to B to C model. So right. the university libraries paid Canopy. It was considered mm-hmm. a library resource, just like books right. or journals are. But we consider the the students and the lecturers and academics our customer. So in yep. at yep. Canopy, the the whole orientation of the business is oriented towards the the end user. Yeah. Yep. Yet Ab- the paying customer the paying is the library. It's yeah. Different. Yeah, yeah, which can be quite tricky to, to get that to work out. It's a constant friction, mm. yeah. constant friction, and it always has been how much of our company resource we dedicate yeah. to the B2B business and yeah. how much mm. we dedicate to the B2C. New and were yeah. there other people trying to do it or did as soon as you got up and got noticed and got traction there were some imitators or competitors? What, what was it like? There were two big incumbents in the US already streaming right. and their model was very much selling large collections of film to university libraries for an upfront price mm. and it yeah. didn't matter if anybody watched them and it turned right. out nobody was watching them. Yeah. Right. So it was quite hard to get a student's <laughs> attention and that didn't sit well with me. So Canopy's Nor model... Nor the universities out of thought. <laughs> they think I'm paying for something and why are we paying for this? Well, the companies were very established and they right. weren't sharing analytics. So I, I, yeah. I, the librarians claim they didn't really know. It was no. a library resource yeah. sitting there. Yeah. And so Canopy's model was quite radical, saying yeah. you, we'll give you all of the films for no cost and you're only charged when users press play. Mm. And it was very, very hard to get, yes. get the users to press play as it turned right. out. And we had to, having the business so focused on the consumer really helped us become incredibly competitive because it's still very, very focused on the consumer. From the very beginning of Mm. our streaming platform, the team realised we have to look and feel like Netflix. That's what students Mm. expect. Yeah. And so we've always felt, we've always had a high bar in terms of our UX and our user experience. And I suppose a pivotal moment was in 2013 when you made the decision to move to San Francisco. And I remember meeting you just before you went. I think you were based in Subiaco then. Correct. Right? So tell us about that. That was not to go and raise money. It was because I think the market was there. 
Correct. There were 39 universities in Australia and 4,500 in the mm. US. Right. So it was purely <laughs> a scaling decision. Numbers, yeah. A big decision at the time because we had a baby and mm. had a really great life and the business was really fun and upbeat. Mm. And it was yeah. a decision, do we stay here and keep it an Australian-focused business yeah. or do we move it to the US and take on the world? And I remember my husband looking at me and saying, I'm not going to die with this regret of yours, let's try it. So yeah. we packed up wow. two bags and a baby and moved over in 2013. And a brother, I think. My brother was studying in Cambridge right. um, and he came and joined the business as well. And your is, husband was also in the business? He was. So it was a real family business. In fact, it was with. just the three of us when we first landed so <laughs> for a few months. Like, yes. Fantastic. And the staff in Australia, presumably they couldn't follow you or you had to hire over there and set it up over there? Correct. We had to hire and set up over, over there, but our staff stayed here and were really okay. instrumental in fueling the business growth over there as mm. really core resources. They were fantastic. We gave the option for staff to move over. Um, mm. Our CTO at the time took that option up mm -hmm. and he's still there. Wow. Fantastic. Just having his 10-year anniversary, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. And what were some of those early challenges mm. starting and, you know, sort of relaunching in the, in the States? I think the early challenges were the unexpected surprises. Mm. Uh, one of the big ones was, in, particularly in San Francisco, is I don't think anyone, particularly at that time, could be prepared for the huge cost of living there. Mm. The rent, the, everything was just so expensive. Um, attracting staff was mm -hmm. ridiculously hard, mm. especially when you're competing with all the sexy Silicon Valley startups. Mm. And because we bootstrapped the business over there, mm. we also had we didn't have a, a team that really had a lot of experience in running an American business. So sure. things caught us by surprise. For mm. example, paying for healthcare, which was basically right. an extra thirty percent loading on mm. our forecasts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on, the already, yeah. on the salaries mm. that yeah. we already under budgeted for. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so there are a lot of surprises like that, which meant. I mean, I didn't pay myself for a year, mm -hmm. et cetera, so, which were really hard. Mm. I think the other probably biggest surprise was the ferocious competitive environment. Mm. And coming from mm. Australia where I think it was quite friendly and collaborative in many ways, moving to the US uh, where people were generally or other companies were genuinely trying to undermine the business, it was really unexpected and particularly mm. mentally tough. So yeah. dirty tricks type stuff from the competitors. Exactly. Yeah, Bad-mouthing you in the press, I think, <laughs> things like that. Things like that. I, one yeah. of the uh, – a, a good example is one of the largest institutions there, the head of the library, was on the payroll of t the two big incumbent, ah, big multinational. Wow. <laughs> and he called me up and he said, uh, if you want to get me on your payroll, here's my costs, which were astronomical. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I politely declined and he said, if you don't have me on your payroll, I will systematically destroy your business and send you back to Australia because he was a bit of a thought leader in, in the video yeah. world. So he was part of the mafia. Lovely. We felt that. Yeah. Great. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But it's one of my – it's one of those moments, though, although it was really difficult at the time, it also I think was part of the reason we succeeded as yeah. a whole company because I remember going home and looking myself in the mirror and seriously thinking, do I have to do this to yeah. survive? We've yeah. got everything on the line here. And I looked myself in the mirror and stood firm and said I would rather, you know, not undermine – I'd rather fail and undermine my integrity, basically. Values-led business right from mm. the beginning. You can you can see it and feel it. Yeah. And did I think he, it's did one he of the greatest strengths. Sorry, did he try and systematically destroy you and how did you get around that problem? Oh, he did. 
He, wow. he, he really did. It was really hard and uh, there was a lot of pain that we had to go through, especially in the first two years. Mm. And the turning point was when there was a huge librarian conference in Vegas, 16,000 librarians from around the world attend, and he was hosting a session called The Future of Video Streaming and invited everybody at that point who was in the market, all the businesses except Canopy. Mm-hmm. And there was a Twitter storm from the librarian saying, how can you talk about the future of streaming when you're not inviting Canopy? You know, the big them. disruptors. Yeah. Yeah. And so no one went. And so oh, from that wow. point on, Fantastic. <laughs> wow. we, uh, we started gaining the market What a moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, one of those moments. Karma too. Karma. And I think uh, I remember visiting you there about 2015. You were two years in. And, and one of the things you said to me is another thing about America is big. There was a lot of travel for you. Mm. The way I look at it now, having a little bit of benefit of hindsight, is like I, th- I think of America like Europe, where every state is its own country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like taking on the entirety of, uh, of Europe, 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 the whole continent. continent. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, it, I, I still am overwhelmed when I think of the size of that country. Huge amount of travel, huge mm. amount of travel. Mm. And mm. four and a half thousand universities to visit. My goodness. A lot of universities. <laughs> <laughs> but slowly and surely you gain traction. And obviously consumers loved it, hence that that story you just told, how they go, how can you do the talk about the future with that canopy? So they must have got some nice traction, you know, building up that software as a service business. There must have been a moment where you thought, oh, I think we're going to make it. I think this is happening. Definitely. And the the moment came with the viewership. The, that was our mm, core metric. Mm, if we have mm. people coming and pressing play, and if you consider particularly a student with all of their distractions, Snapchat, Facebook, mm. Netflix, whatever, right. YouTube, and yet they're coming and choosing to come to Canopy and telling their friends about it, that was mm. our strongest marketing. Yeah, That was a moment. And it's still probably our biggest business challenge is that we're too so-called too successful. Right. <laughs> There's too much viewership, and we obviously have very limited library budgets that we right. must, um, yeah. yeah, work within. Mm-hmm. But if you consider the sorts of films we were streaming, which were a lot of films about around identity in the US, the African American experience, the Latino mm-hmm. experience, I still believe we have one of the best LGBTQ film collections on the planet. Mm-hmm. And you think of the students who are going to university and this is a time of personal growth, of challenging their identity, mm. challenging these sort the way of they think. The yeah. way of condi- yeah, they've yeah. been conditioned in a certain way and challenging and really trying to work out the world around them. Canopy was a perfect platform for that. So it wasn't just an academic um, platform or mm. resource. Mm. It was also to, I guess, for personal development of, of the students. And if you look at any mission of nearly any university, and I'll take Berkeley because mm. that was our local um, it's to to build contributing citizens of the world. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, um, and so I think Canopy really played into the, those mission statements, which is why the schools loved it. And that must make you feel particularly proud. You're, you know, you've got a background in film and a love of film. So, yeah, can you talk to us a bit about how that really contributed to, I think, this successful business model? I do believe film is one of the strongest agents for change. I think being able to hear stories from people you may never come into contact with, Mm. being able to hear grassroots stories which aren't polluted by political or corporate finances or whatever it might be, are really important. Mm. And at Canopy, we genuinely felt that every time someone pressed play, 
the world was a better place. Keep in mind we were in Silicon Valley, so we could think of it. But it was a genuine sort of values-based mm. organisation that felt really, really good. Mm. And the commentary mm. around the films that professors or, or students had was fantastic. Mm. And we, it was one of the hardest things for me was when students were leaving and they would call up literally on the telephone and say, Canopy's part of my life. Mm. Um, I'm now leaving university. I won't have my student access to the library anymore. Mm. How can I keep access to Canopy? Yeah. And, of course, to an entrepreneur about it, that was just heartbreak. Exactly. And all I saw was opportunity. And that led to the decision to launch into public libraries to make Canopy available to anyone, to any participating library. Yeah. And I do love that there's uh, no obstacles. It's free for the end user because Mm. the libraries invest in this resource they think is valuable for mm. their membership. Mm. And so anybody can access it. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how mm. which socio-economic yep. um, um, demographic you fall in, yeah. et cetera. And I do love love that, particularly when you think of the sorts of, of films that, that we're streaming. It's really, With that sort of mm. success in America and, and, and getting a bit more profile, um, did you then have term sheets put under your nose, people wanting to invest, hassling you, wanted to get in, which is a nice situation to be. And I think eventually you did take on a, quite a major investor which had quite a, an amazing uh, result. You want to talk to us about that? Sure. I didn't really experience having term sheets and I think okay. that's probably because I wasn't thinking in that way. I was having so much fun running the business and right. it was just growing. And, we, I and wasn't all self-funded thinking. still. And it was all right. self-funded. Mm. Um, we had an angel investor from Perth, yep. Matt McFarlane, who turned into a great mentor, particularly in those early years where we were finding our way. And around 2013, we uh, I found myself starting to make safe decisions. Canopy got so big and all my husband and my eggs were all in the one basket mm-hmm. and the fear of failure mm-hmm. became all-encompassing and I realised that's not the way to keep building this this amazing business. And that was the first time that I started seeking some external investment, not as growth equity, but just actually to sell some of the company to take so-called some chips off the table some, yeah. and yeah. to have that sort of um, something to fall back on if if anything went wrong. Mm. And it was actually harder than it than it sounded. I really had to hit hit the pavements to mm. to and it was also a very unattractive proposition to a lot of the venture capital or even the the private equity mm. that I spoke to because they were used to having founders in a growth company saying, would you like to invest to help us grow to the next level? Mm-hmm. Whereas mm. I said, we don't need growth equity. I want to sell some of the companies so that we can grow to the next level. And that that was just not something yeah. that happened. Yeah. In fact, I was sent out of most of the fancy, yeah. <laughs> fancy <laughs> offices in New York saying, that's really unattractive. What's wrong with they your business? They don't like the founder leaving. <laughs> that's no, yeah. no, they're like, what's wrong? Yeah. Very suspicious. <laughs> and I was introduced uh, to a, an amazing, Amazing um, uh, Arizonan man who had a private equity company, and he was the first one we sat down at his fancy estate in Napa wow. and had breakfast. And within an hour, he was the first and pretty much the only person I spoke to hmm. who said, "Let's do this." Hmm. And he later said he was investing in um, in me, mm. and the, and mm. that was something that I just never take for granted. Mm. And it was the biggest, most impactful thing that ever happened to me at Canopy was having him as an investor and his team. It was uh, his, his company's Najafi Companies and his team were amazing uh, in terms of helping grow the business, helping me right. 
um, coaching me as a CEO, mm. et cetera, introductions. Mm. And well. what was his background? Mm. I think he owned a baseball team or something and he'd obviously made his money. How? Fascinating background. Emigrated to the US when he was 12, right. ended up in Berkeley and then did an MBA at Harvard and built uh, his private equity through his own wealth. In fact, he only invests his own funds in companies. Huh. He owned, yeah, he owned a baseball team. He owned uh, big, large book companies. He owned huge amounts of real estate. He, he, in fact, he owned so much. But I found during my time in the US, there are a lot of these billionaires who no one's ever heard of. Mm. Keep a very yeah. low profile, mm. very, very discreet, mm. very, very yeah, considered. And, and I think he falls into that category. And then about a year ago, you there was a transition to a new CEO. So can you tell us a little bit about why that happened and, and how that happened and, and where you are now? Now you're back in Perth, of mm. course. Great to have you back in Perth, but <laughs> that story we'd love to hear. Well, Canopy decided we were look, interested in, in an acquisition around 2016. In our, we'd never bought any other company and there was a film company that made a lot of sense to us. So with Najafi, we flew out to the East Coast and looked at buying this company, but it was loaded with debt. And we put in a bid, a very low bid, which was effectively we'll just take on the debt of this acquisition. And we ended up missing out at, to some private equity firms that paid enormous amounts for this debt-loaded loaded company. And I remember saying to, to Jam at the time, this is really strange. How can this company be valued so mm. outrageously? And Jam said there's a lot of um, money in the market right now. Companies are getting uh, sold for enormous valuations. And I said, well, it's time to sell. Basically, that's how it <laughs> happened. <Okay. laughs> and um, because we've been incredibly fortunate, I think when you see opportunities, there are times when you just have to go after it. Mm. And mm. regardless of where I was at with my career and the company, I just thought this is an opportunity which would be silly not to take. Mm. So that led to our own acquisition process. We hired some investment bankers out of New York and it was a really fascinating, exciting process. We were fortunate enough to have a very what the investment bankers called one of their most robust um, bidding processes. I guess the company finances were really solid. We were seeing enormous growth. The team was just fantastic. And uh, we ended up selling to an Orange County, a Californian private equity in 2016. I stayed on as CEO. Around six months into that process, there were a few family reasons that my husband and I decided, you know, it's time to move back to Perth. Mm. So I went to the private equity company was doing well, team was great. And I, and I said, look, I'm going to resign, but give you 12 months notice. And I'm going to work with you to find a new CEO to really take this company to the next level. And having that amount of time was a really fantastic, right. yeah. <laughs> found a fabulous CEO, Kevin Sayer, incredibly experienced, just brought a whole lot of new energy mm. to the company. Yeah. He thinks in a very different way. The executive team responded incredibly well to him. They're all still there. The company's doing right. great, you know, touching wood yeah. in such challenging times. Yeah. There's a huge need for video. Yeah. And I think for me, leaving the company, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that the executive team and, and the entire team really are still that there. Stayed. Yeah. 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 You know, almost a year later. I think that's, uh, I feel proud of that. It's an amazing legacy for a leader too in that in that space. Um, so you're back in WA now. How, mm. how have you found it acclimatising back in this, this strange times that we're in? 
So we landed the 28th of December. (laughs) Our timing could not have been better. And I was at first, the feeling I would describe is guilt Mm. with uh, COVID hitting to all of what's happening in America is just tragic. I've got family there and friends Mm. and just so many amazing people. It's just so sad, but I've worked through that and Mm. I feel relief now, Mm. a huge Mm. amount of relief. I feel so proud to be Australian. I feel so proud of our response. I feel so proud of Western Australia. Mm-hmm. I think we are so you know, fortunate to be in the situation we're in leading normal lives when, you know, in other places, worlds are falling right. apart. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of been the all-consuming focus mm-hmm. right now. And what about Perth's startup scene such as it was when you left in 2013, six years later come back? Has it changed much? What, is, what are some of your... Enormously changed. There is a scene now. Right. When I left, I don't <laughs> really no call it a scene. No. no. And it's, part, it's of, true. part of me, I think, gosh, it would be great to start off in this buzzy environment. I have been amazed at the amount of energetic, interesting, mm. incredibly talented founders doing amazing things here. Yeah. I think that's been a huge surprise. Yeah. I just haven't been part of the scene, being so focused on the company in America. And coming back, it's just been energizing to be to be honest. I feel it's a very, very healthy scene. It reminds me a lot of the startup scenes in Austin or Denver, some of these <laughs> cities where there's this really yeah. real I think buzz is the only way I can describe mm. it. Great. Mm. Mm. And and what do you think it needs compared to maybe what you've seen, which everyone looks up to the Silicon Valley scene as the scene? Obviously, we don't necessarily have to replicate that here, but but what do you think we lack or what do we need or we just need a bit more time or success stories or what is it the Perth startup scene needs? So understanding that I arrived back in a time of COVID. <laughs> yes, yes, true, true. I yeah. will just say one caveat, which is I'm still learning right. and mm. there is a lot to learn. But my initial observations is, as I said, I've been actually quite surprised how um, how big the scene is mm. here. Mm. I, I really am. I think there's some incredible companies. I think I'd like to understand more about the funding environment. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about that. But coming from Silicon Valley where there's pretty much no government funding, yeah. there are, there is government funding here, which I'm, I'm learning about that I hear has been quite helpful to a lot of the startups. But I would love to understand more about... Um, some of the VCs or other funding Won't take you long. Yeah. There's not much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Olivia, we'd like to just take a step back in time now and just find out a bit about your schooling, your favourite subjects. Was there a kind of an entrepreneurial spirit within you in your you know, primary high school days? I think in in high school I was just more focused on the academics, Mm. my friends and boys, um, to be honest. (laughs) In that order maybe. (laughs) Um, I did well at school Mm. and particularly in the subjects that I loved, which is also a big learning and which skewed humanities. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I really look back on my schooling days with joy because of the friendships. Yeah. more than anything else. And what what did you do after school? What was your... I went to university, UNSW, yeah. and studied psych. And my most memorable year actually was the student exchange I did in Vancouver in, in Canada mm-hmm. at UBC. And I enjoyed learning how people think, but mm. my experience with psychology was the brain is such a complex <laughs> mechanism that mm. we truly don't understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you ended up in Village Roadshow. Do you have jobs in between doing stuff before that? Village Roadshow and I guess my 
direct manager there, the marketing director and also the CEO at the time, um, Chris Chard. Both Lisa Bacon and Chris Chard I think have played huge roles mm. in, my, right. in my career in terms of being a coach but also sparking the entrepreneurial bug. Mm-hmm. Um, they were really, really gave me a lot of rope in terms of what I was what I was able to do in, in that role. And my other probably most instrumental role would be in London at BBC Worldwide. I was working right. in their commercial division mm-hmm. in the children's media department. And again, that was very early on in my career. And I look back and I think, how did BBC give me so much responsibility <laughs> so young? <laughs> and again, just understanding, um, yeah, learning those early business skills, being able to work out how to commercialize products, try some risky things that ended up working or not working and just really truly getting those yeah, I, I, mm, those awesome. early learnings and, and the confidence I would say to mm, eventually go out and do important. it on my own. Yeah. And, and now you're back in, in Perth and, and obviously have a reputation of being immensely successful entrepreneur from Perth having gone to Silicon Valley and back. I'm sure everyone's lining up to have <laughs> coffee with you. Um, and it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for saying yes. yes. I know you're very busy. Yes. What are you looking to do now? What, what's the future for Olivia? Are you still sort of working that out? I'm still working that out. And I think it's partly because I feel I've lost a little bit of time with COVID. Mm. But now on reflection, I've gained all this mm. time. Mm. Yes. My yes. first and most important priority is uh, my family because mm. obviously the role in the US was very full on. There was so much travel. The hours were long. Mm-hmm. And I'm really enjoying being there for my son, my mm-hmm. soon-to-be eight-year-old, and, uh, and and my husband, and just enjoying a little bit of, of time. So that's mm. really, really not taking that for granted. Um, the second thing is I've been talking to a lot of um, amazing founders who have mm. been in similar situations and fortunate enough to come back to Perth with some success behind them and now doing incredible, impactful work. Mm. And I would like to think that would be me mm. at some point in my future, but I don't want to rush it. And mm. pretty much everyone I, I talk to in this situation, they all say the same thing, which is, I wish that I had given myself a year Mm. Mm -hmm. and nearly everyone gave three months. And so I feel in a way I'm in my first three months considering we're coming out. And so I just want to make sure I I am very careful with what I do and that what I do do next is going to be hopefully something very worthwhile, but I can say it's going to be in Perth. I am never leaving again. Excellent. Excellent. Lucky us. Lucky us. Well, it's been a fantastic chat and thank you very much for sharing all that. We're going to finish with a, Rapid, quick fire round, mm. and you can shoot out a, a word or a phrase to these questions. Um, do you want to start, Danelle? I will kick it off. So, Olivia, what's the single most important factor that makes a successful startup? Oh, I would say grit, defined as anybody who's read <laughs> to yes. start with. Yeah, um, passion and, and uh, perseverance. I think that persistence is really important. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Founder as a solo or founder as a team. Solo from experience. Right. Mm. So who should we interview next? Oh, there's some incredible. Mm. It doesn't have to be just WA either. I have to say mm. too. If it's mm. WA, it has to be Melanie Perkins because I yeah. just think mm. she has done the most amazing things. It's so young at that time going to Silicon Valley mm-hmm. as a young woman with a great idea and knocking on doors. That is a really great early startup story. Yeah. Yep. I think overall I would love you to interview Reese Witherspoon. I am in awe of what Ooh. she is doing. She is amazing actually. Her She's- Hello Sunshine Company mm-hmm. and it, it hasn't been an easy ride, her story. 
story of building a company, which is ultimately proving that women's films about women by women can make a lot of money. And guess what? Guys like to watch them too. Yeah. Pretty cool. So true. AI, like it or loathe it? Love it. Okay. Mm. If you were at a bar, what would you be ordering? Glass of West Australian, probably Semsav. Mm. Nice. What does self-care look like for you? Um, remembering to prioritise one's health. And by that mm. I mean physical health mm. but particularly mental health. And last one, what are you watching right now? Right now I last night actually just finished an incredible documentary mm. called In My Blood It Runs about uh, a little Indigenous boy in the Northern Territory and his educational experience should be mandatory watching. It's just a wonderful, beautiful film that talks about the complexities of Hmm. the Australian educational system. It's really, really wonderful. Is that SBS? What what was that on? ABC. 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 Okay. On probably on iView. In My Blood It Runs. In My Blood It Runs. In My Blood It Runs. Okay. Check it out. Very talented filmmaker. Thanks, Olivia. Thank you. And we want to wish you all the very Mm. best. And thank you very much for, you know, your valuable time here on the Startup West podcast. Um, yeah, it's where WA is very, very lucky to have you and your experience. And thank you for um, for sharing that with us with us Absolutely. today. Thank you for having me. I'd also like to thank our sponsors. The Startup West podcast is produced by Startup News and is made possible by the support from Space Cubed Co-working Spaces, the New Industries Fund, Curtin University, RSM, and the City of Perth. And we recorded this podcast in beautiful downtown Perth at the Rift Studios, WA. Don't forget to subscribe to Startup West on your favourite pod platform so our latest episodes will wing their way to you automatically. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. And as I did last time, I will read a review from, do you know Dr. Helen Cripps from ECU? I do know Helen. Thank you, Helen. She said on our Apple podcast review, gave us five stars, which, by the way, our average is five stars. I thank you. (laughs) Great to hear innovation flowing out of Perth. We might be isolated, but we can still be creative and be the best in the world. Well, Olivia proves that. The Perth version of how I built this. Thank you, Helen. Which is one of my favourite. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Helen. And thank you, Olivia. Thanks for having me.